Real Presence Live. That which is beautiful will manifest itself in truth and in goodness. Local. The challenges that we're facing in our generation, we just need the gospel. I mean, every every culture, every generation just needs to know how the gospel applies. Engaging. We don't bring any life at all to the church. The church is, is the life. It gives us the life. Live. The reality is, He is all things beautiful, capital B. And so anything that is authentically beautiful draws us, even if we don't realize it, to God. Good morning. Welcome to Real Presence Live, Duluth Edition. This is Father Richard Kunst along with... The better Cindy Jennings. The better Cindy Jennings as opposed to last month where she wasn't so great. But so <laughs> welcome. It's great to have you listening to Real Presence Live. And we'll start this show with a prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, be with us. We ask you to be with our uh, guests in a particular way, but also our listeners that everything that they listen to and hear today through our show will bring them closer to Christ. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name Amen. of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So why is it that you're better, uh, Cindy, than you were last Last month. That's how I took your comment. I think because I woke up at 5.30 this morning to get all the kids ready for school. First day of First school. Day. Are you excited? Um, no, I don't know. Why? A little bit. Uh, because it's a lot of work and now we have sports and I have yeah. four kids in three different schools, That's... which means... That driving is crazy. on, you know, yeah. times three. Yeah, no, okay, I get it. So get it's it. going to be a little chaotic. I'm not sure how it's going to work, but the good you, Lord you, will get me through. You always... You always pull it through. You always yes. get it figured out. With lots of help from friends. Thank and you. And the kids are getting Too older, so it's getting easier. Listen. Yes. <clears throat> All right. Well, we are all ready for our first guest. So, you know, we like to talk about how uh, Real Presence Radio and Real Presence Live is really universal. I mean, you can you can actually listen to it anywhere if you get the app or go online. Anywhere on the planet Earth, you can listen. We even have guests from all over the planet Earth, including our first guest, who is Professor Kendrick Oliver, calling from the U.K., uh, Kendrick, welcome to Real Presence Live. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. It's it's great. So just so all the listeners can hear, we actually I think we're our listening area is like two or three time zones. What's your what what time is it right now in the UK for all of our listeners to hear? So it's just <clears throat> past uh, three o'clock in the afternoon. Three o'clock in the afternoon. So it's great to have an international guest here. And why don't you, uh, Professor? Why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself first? Uh, so I, I'm a professor of American history at the University of Southampton in the um, in the United Kingdom, um, and I've written a, a number of, of books. And one of those I think we're going to be talking about, which is called "To Face to Touch the Face of God: The Sacred, the Profane, and the American Space Program, 1957 to 1975," uh, published by Johns Hopkins University Press um, quite some years ago. So about ten years ago, right? That's about right. Yes. Yeah. So. Okay, so what's your, I mean, so that's, this is going to be a super interesting topic, but what's your favorite book that you've written? Uh, probably that one actually, um, oh. because it was it was a it was a cheer, it was a cheerful topic, and um, uh, I enjoyed sort of uh, there's a certain sort of boy's own sort of interest um, uh, in the space program, but it allowed me to sort of uh, touch on a whole range of sort of things that I was interested, in, including you know sort of religion, spirituality, and, and um, America in the 1950s and 1960s. It was uh, it was really fun to write. So okay, so I'm going to ask a question that maybe would be asked later in the interview, but I'm going to ask it right out front because everybody's talking about it in the United States right now. It's huge in the U.S. It's probably in the U.K. as well, but more and more there's a lot of government um, uh, hearings in regards to quote unquote UFOs uh, and all these new videos out there. And what would that, from your standpoint, what would that mean if there was extraterrestrial? 
in regards to our faith? I mean, would that have an impact on our faith if there was some other intelligent being out there that more and more seems to be uh, of interest to people these days? Certainly in the United States, this is really big news. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's in a sense, it's not a, it's not a new topic for, for theologians. Um, theologians have been discussing this um, for, for literally centuries, and there's a really live, um, debate about this going on in the, in the sort of 18th and 19th century, what's called the kind of plurality of worlds um, uh, debate. It gets an enormous amount of attention at that point, and it, it sort of raises a lot of kind of interesting issues for, for um, uh, people of faith, particularly about the significance of the earth within the kind of greater scheme of God's creation. Is, is God looking after the earth as a sort of special place, or is he, look, or is he looking after um, uh, other places? Do they have kind of equal status within the kind of horizon of his care? There were quite kind of questions about the, you know, the significance of, of, of Christ and the incarnation of Christ on earth. Do other places require their own Christ, as it were, to, to, if, if, if there is intelligent life forms on, on other planets over uh, in other stars, do they each require a, a different kind of Christ-like uh, uh, redeemer, or, or did, did kind of Christ's sacrifice on Earth actually kind of cover the entirety of, of creation? So all of these issues are very much kind of being, they've been discussed for a very long time. They're discussed in the, in, in the space age, and clearly they're, 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 they're of interest now. And of course, the church—I mean, the Catholic Church doesn't really speak to this directly. I mean, there's no real specific uh, position that the church takes. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, there isn't really a what we might call a sort of systematic theology on on um, space flight. So, if, if you're trying to sort of work out the dis- distinction between a kind of Catholic position on the implications of, of the space age or the space program or space flight, it's quite difficult to work that out as being something sort of separate from what might be, you know, a Jewish position or, or, or a, um, a sort of mainline Protestant um, position. But, uh, there's an awful lot of kind of cross, so the, the same sort of questions tend to sort of uh, repeat in, in different kind of theological um, uh, settings. So, uh, you know, and, it, and, it, and nobody is really taking, certainly in the, in the kind of classical space age, nobody's really taking hold that asks people what their views of space like space flight are according to their religious um, adherence. So it's difficult to actually sort of say there is a particular kind of Catholic position or, or a set of kind of particular kind of Catholic responses to, to space flight that might be different from, um, you know, say a Protestant or evangelical uh, Protestant or Jewish position. There's a, um, a, there's a strain, because of the popularity of this becoming more and more in the forefront, at least in the United States, there's a strain of theological thought that I've heard that I don't, I don't, I don't ascribe to. But I'm curious what you think. I've heard some people say, and actually this is out on the internet as well, that that they think that quote unquote UFOs are actually a demon, demonic phenomenon, and that there's not really life in other areas other than Earth. Have you heard that before? Well, I, again, that that, that has. Um, that has some sort of precedence, and, and and there are other ways of thinking about this. So Billy Billy Graham, for example, wrote a book um, uh, called Angels in the in the early 1970s, in which he he talked about the possibility of UFOs as being a, a kind of form of angelic <laughs> visitation. So, you know, I think there's there's this is very much open to people to kind of read, you know, you, you can you can read a lot about what's happening in terms of space flight extraterrestrial life, depending on your kind of pre-existing uh, positions. And if you're, if you're inclined to 
tempted to sort of wonder about demonic visitations, then that might be something that either you, you read into as kind of UFOs. If you perhaps a slightly more kind of hopeful disposition, you might think of them as kind of angelic visitations. Um, you know, so I, I think it's, a, it, it's certainly not a new debate. Um, let, let's kind of get back to the book. I just, I'm curious to know, how did you start working on it? What was the inspiration to write it in the connection with the religion part and then the space program part? Sure. Um, it's a long time ago now, I think, that I, I, I started. But I'm, I'm really a historian of America in the 1960s, and I was writing a book on um, uh, the Vietnam War, and I was reading a lot of uh, American newspapers from the 1960s, uh, watching a lot of kind of uh, television news broadcasts from the time, reading lots of kind of documents. Um, and, the, and the kind of one, so, so the Vietnam War is a very kind of key topic that you see obviously discussed in newspapers and, and television news and, and, and so on. But the other topic that kept coming up was really the kind of the Apollo um, uh, program. And uh, I was looking in particular at 1968, which is the year you may, I don't know whether you're old enough to, to uh, uh, remember it or, or, or you know very much about it, but the, uh, you know, this is the year when you have assassination of Martin King, assassination of Robert Kennedy, the year of the Tet Offensive in the Vietnam War, when it seems to succumb to stalemate. There were lots of protests, there was unrest in, in America's cities, uh, including Washington, D.C. But towards the end of the year, there's this sort of very sort of interesting event that happens. It's the first crude um, flight towards the vicinity of the moon. It's the first time the Apollo spacecraft has actually gone um, out of Earth orbit. It's the Apollo 8 mission. Um, and, and the crew of Apollo 8 enter uh, lunar orbit, and they have to deliver a kind of live radio and television broadcast to the world. And it's Christmas Eve, 1968. And during that broadcast, they, they, they spend some time describing the kind of lunar surface as they, as they cruise above it. But they close the broadcast, and this is to the whole of the world, really, with, with a reading of the first 10 verses of the Bible from, from Genesis, with its account of observation of the, the Earth. Um, and that's the kind of world that they're able to look back on um, from lunar orbit over a distance of about 230,000 miles. And it's a really striking event, and it was sort of something that I stored away to look at later for, as it were, the next book. And that's, that's what evolved later into, into uh, to touch the face of God, into a kind of broad, broad study of the, of the significance of religion to the space program and of the space program to, to religious Americans. So that's kind of how I got started. It it um, uh, strikes me that you know that would never happen today. I can't imagine that uh, the space program, uh, a, a monumental uh, occurrence or event, would actually read from the scriptures. So it strikes me that they were a little bit bit more religious back in the 1960s than we are today. Well, we can perhaps talk a little bit more about that. But it, I mean, it's it's a relatively rare event, even from that for that time, um, and it gets a lot of attention precisely because it's a, it's quite a conspicuous use of. Uh, of uh, religion and religious scripture kind of within a, within what felt like more generally a kind of relatively secular um, space program. And yet I, I remember also uh, images of Pope Paul VI looking at uh, watching the television as watching the Apollo um, landed on Apollo, was it 11? It landed on the moon. And so obviously yep. religion yep. Uh, and church uh, um, very much is uh, in uh, uh, in a good harmony with with science and even maybe you can speak a little bit to that I mean how does religion connect to that to that space program in the United States from fifty seven to seventy five yeah i mean it's 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 very difficult to separate out a sort of interest in space from a kind of very long religious tradition that kind of identifies the heavens as a kind of domain of sort of uh, the sacred, which you're obviously sort of interested in, uh, also as uh, that, that sort of 
has the idea of kind of ascent or kind of looking upwards as being uh, a sort of motion that carries one kind of closer to, to um, God. And so those sort of connotations about kind of heaven and ascent are, are, are quite difficult to sort of separate out. They're, they're really kind of deeply baked into kind of human thinking and, 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 and practice. It's certainly the case that there are plenty of Americans of faith who are kind of at work in the, in the space program. So you can think of people like Werner von Braun, who, who designs the, um, the Saturn V rocket, which is sort of delivering the Apollo spacecraft out of kind of Earth orbit and into, in, into the, the moon. Uh, and some of the astronauts are also, you know, uh, people of faith. But we have to be a little bit careful about um, this kind of question of, of, of motivation. You know, there are religious people working on the space program. That doesn't mean necessarily that they were working on the space program because they were religious uh, people. Werner von Braun, for example, was a, a rocket enthusiast long before he he experienced the kind of conversion experience and, and converted to evangelical Christianity. Um, you know, astronauts very regularly went to, to church on Sundays and were very kind of comfortable with that. Um, but many of them were also, you know, they just really liked flying, <laughs> really liked engineering, and this was the kind of cutting edge of the, of the kind of test pilot uh, profession. Um, and the other thing we need to think about, of course, are the kind of immediate policy motivations behind the, 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 the Apollo program. It's to compete with the Soviet Union in the Cold War, and that's that's a sort of contest in which religion is really quite important. This is a contest in which you have a kind of Christian nation against a kind of uh, atheist country. But it's not the only reason to compete against the Soviet Union. There are, there are national security issues, clearly. There are economic differences. There are different views of, 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 of the state. So it's sort of good to beat the atheist Soviets to the moon, but, but the Soviet atheism is not the only um, reason to do so. So it's quite a kind of complex package of, of you know, secular... Um, and and sort of religious sort of motivations that are that are sort of feeding into into the program. We're talking to Professor Kendrick Oliver about his book, To Touch the Face of God, The Sacred and Profane in the American Space Program, 1957 to 1975. He is calling from the UK, and we're going to continue this uh, great conversation uh, after this very quick break. Stay with us, please. Stay with us. There's more Real Presence Live to come on the Real Presence Radio Network. Searching for more great Catholic content? Visit our website at realpresenceradio.com. Find Catholic news you can trust, information about events coming up in the local area, and the latest on what's happening at the RPR Network. And don't forget that you can listen to any of our stations around the clock from anywhere in the world. Need prayers for someone or something in your life? You can submit those through our online form for the entire family to pray for. Real Presence Radio, your family of faith and hope. Online at realpresenceradio.com. Hi, this is Ben Frost from Holy Spirit Church in Virginia, Minnesota. I work with adult evangelization. I'm also a father of five children. And for me, I'm just so blessed to have Real Presence Radio in our area because the reality is, is life gets very busy. Uh, The many blessings of working in the church and also raising five children and being a husband. But sometimes I just need times to refuel and to just be present to the Lord. So for me, it's just such a blessing to go into my car in the busyness of my day and to turn on Real Presence Radio. And it really renews me. It fills me with the Holy Spirit and helps me to be a better father, helps me to be a better husband, and it helps me to be a better worker for our church. So I'm just very blessed that we have Real Presence Radio and we continue just to pray for the Lord's blessings and support for all of their amazing work. 
you could earn a degree that offers the best of both worlds, an MBA and a master's degree in philosophy. The University of Mary offers one degree that combines world-class business training with a careful study of life's deepest questions through their combined MBA, MA, and philosophy program. By earning one degree in both philosophy and business online, you will rigorously engage the big ideas needed to address professional challenges. Visit catholicprofessional.life. You're listening to Real Presence Live. Now, back to more inspirational and uplifting stories and a look at the extraordinary things happening in our local area. Heard right here on the RPR Network. Welcome back to Real Presence Live. This is Father Richard Kunz, along with Cindy Jennings, coming to you from the Diocese of Duluth, Minnesota. We are talking to Professor Kendrick Oliver about a fascinating topic about space and faith in the 1950s and 60s, 57 to 1975. Cindy. Yeah, this, I mean, this is very interesting to me. I think this might be one of the most interesting guests we've had on. Um, So I was wondering, can you just kind of give us what kinds of religious or spiritual experiences accompanied the space age? So that's a a really interesting question. Um, uh, There are lots of expectations and kind of anticipations, and this is, is, you know, at at, at the time. So people thinking about what might happen during a space flight were very often thinking about um, the sort of experiences and whether people would be changed by by this sort of outer world experiences. I mean, this is partly because the 1960s, as you may know, is the sort of period when um, uh, the kind of promise of religious experience is being sort of drawn closer to people's lives. So whether, whether it's because, you know, there's, there's a kind of evangelical revival that's taking place, so people are undergoing kind of uh, evangelical conversion experiences, but there's also the kind of counterculture and there's all kinds of experiments with, with New Age spirituality going on as well. Um, but it's also partly because there seems to be kind of plenty of, of precedents uh, for different kinds of spiritual experiences, whether they're good ones or bad ones, in, in sort of endeavors that seemed analogous to space travel. So experiences such as in kind of exploration. Um, people like Christopher Columbus, for example, have kind of uh, experienced something like a spiritual breakdown on his, on his third voyage um, uh, towards the Americas. Uh, experiences in space flight. So the, 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 the actual the, the name of the book, To Touch the Face of God, comes from a poem uh, written by a, a pilot during World War II. Um, and also in, in experiences of sort of isolation. So uh, towards the end of the 1950s, there were, there were a number of kind of isolation experiments being conducted, partly to replicate the conditions to be confronted by U.S. astronauts um, through kind of prolonged confinement in, in, in a kind of space capsule simulation. And almost routinely, those who, went, who participated in those experiments sort of started to hallucinate. And, and this is actually something that NASA um, was, was sort of worried about, because if you're an astronaut having a sort of intense spiritual experience, whether it's a good one or a bad one, you're, you're less likely to be sort of steering your spacecraft um, uh, effectively. And so the agency itself really kind of keen to recruit astronaut candidates who, who seem very kind of conspicuously stable and, and resilient. Um, and it's also designing its sort of mission plans to try and make sure that these sort of astronauts keep so busy that they, they have sort of little opportunity for reflection or for depression or for, or for kind of uh, uh, wonder. The interesting effect of that is actually to create a kind of institutional culture within, uh, within NASA that, that in which kind of astronauts 
actually prefer not to talk about spiritual experiences in space, whether they're the sort of spiritual experiences that might be anticipated or ones that they actually experience themselves, because there's a kind of professional stigma attached to that. So that's, that's a kind of wow. interesting anticipation. And what, yeah, and what actually happens is that, you know, there are some um, documented instances, some of which are, are quite um, uh, distinct, and they're quite dependent upon the individual personality of the astronaut and, and where they travel to. If you like, I can describe a few of those. Um, you know, so we have examples like uh, Russell Schweighart, who was, who was on an Earth orbital mission, just going around the, 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 the Earth, testing out the Apollo equipment on Apollo 9. He developed a very kind of powerful appreciation of the kind of wholeness of, of his sort of planetary home, and which was sort of quite a kind of religious or spiritual experience for him. Edgar Mitchell, who, who traveled to the moon on, on Apollo 14, experienced what he called a kind of ecstasy of unity on the journey home. This is a sort of sense that, that mankind belonged to the, cosmos, the, the greater cosmos. Um, Mitchell had actually done a PhD at MIT, and he was aware of, of the, the recent finding that, 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 that carbon was generated out of the explosion of, of stars, and that therefore mankind is a carbon life form was sort of generated out of the cosmos and he, he sort of put those two things together and he had this kind of ecstasy of, of, of unity in, uh, uh, during, the, uh, during his journey home and there's also the very famous case of, of um, James Irwin who, who explored the mountains of the moon during Apollo 15 and he had a very kind of powerful sensation of God, uh, God's presence on, on the moon and he returned home um, to, to found an evangelical ministry. So these are quite sort of significant uh, experiences but in all of these cases, all of these astronauts are accompanied by people who don't have those experiences. And so it very much depends. C.S. Lewis, who, who, you know, who was a, a sort of theologian and a, and, a, and a writer, said that religious experiences very often depend on the seeing eye and not necessarily what is seen. Um, right. It depends on who the people are. You know, and so I think, I think that's true of the astronauts as well. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm a, one of my former parishioners is an astrophysicist, and and he says that the the percentage of of atheists is the same in the astrophysicist community as it is in the general community. And so, I guess it's based on your disposition and not what you are as a profession or not what you're looking at. Yeah, I think I think that's true. And you know, and as I've said, there's there's plenty of, of people within the space program who. Um, you know, our, our religious Americans who go to church, uh, you know, every Sunday, who are active in their churches, um, uh, whilst working in the space program, the, the interesting question is how much is sort of fed from one to the other, and that's, that's a slightly sort of trickier thing to work out. Um, but, we de- you know, we definitely see examples of, of religious practices within the, the, the space program at this, uh, this period. Apollo 8 is the, is the, the very obvious one, the, the, the Genesis reading, but we also have, you know, Buzz Aldrin, when he lands on um, the moon on Apollo uh, 11, uh, celebrates communion. You know, he, yeah, he does right. it. It's an amazing thought, actually. They, they have the, he lands on the moon, and then NASA has scheduled a, a sort of period uh, when they're supposed to sleep before they actually step out onto the, onto, onto the moon. And, of course, you know, you can't imagine actually going to sleep in that scenario. But what Aldrin does was, you know, he celebrates uh, communion. David Scott, who's uh, of James Irwin on, on Apollo 15, actually leaves a small red Bible on, on, on one of the lunar um, uh, rovers that they're, they're, they're using on the moon. You can actually see the photographs of the Bible. Um, cool. there. And then, of course, there is the Apollo 8 Genesis reading. Yeah, I'd heard about the communion one. Of course, that wasn't a Catholic Eucharist, just so people, the listeners that are hearing that. But um, uh, yep. yeah, that, that, that was a very yep. important thing for him. And you see that religious component of these astronauts as you're, as you're talking about. Maybe speak a little bit more about the, the response to the reading of, um, 
Genesis on the Apollo Eight. You said you'd said something that, that it wasn't it wasn't necessarily received well by everybody. No, it's it's uh, it, it's received well initially in the sense that um, the, the sort of the moment works really well. I mean, the the the, the reading of Genesis is, is to some extent a a decision because the astronauts need to say something of significance and meaning to the world on Christmas Eve. It's a, it's a sort of big moment. And they were really sort of struggling with this. Do we use Shakespeare? Do, you know, what, do, what, do we, uh, uh, what, what do we say? Um, and, and somebody said, well, why don't you just read from Genesis? And it seemed to really work. Um, uh, so it was, it was, it was a sort of a, a solution to a, a problem, um, uh, but it worked really well. But it's quite difficult to, to, to judge its effect separately from the development that very quickly followed, which is that uh, probably the most famous atheist of the period, Madeleine Murray O'Hare, very quickly complained about the reading on the grounds that it violated the constitutional separation between church and state. And now, O'Hare had been a plaintiff in the, in the 1963 case that had that seen Bible reading prohibited um, from the U.S. Uh, public schools. And so there's this kind of fear amongst quite a few Americans of, of, of faith that O'Hare might somehow manage to, to get religious speech banned, not just from, like, public schools, but actually from God's own heavens. And so we see um, petitions in defense of the Apollo 8 astronauts and their right to religious speech in, in, in space are kind of pouring into NASA over the course of 1969, um, 1970, even going on beyond the time that O'Hare essentially kind of had given up on the issue. The courts weren't very interested in it. Um, uh, so I actually found evidence that, uh, of a total of about 8 million signatures. Um, coming into NASA between the end of 1968 and 1975, which is a kind of response that's, that's larger than that uh, reported for the Supreme Court decisions on school prayer. It's larger than that reported for, for Roe versus Wade, for example. So it's a, it's a really interesting phenomenon, that, that kind of response to, to the, the Apollo 8 Genesis reading and the, and the sort of the desire of, of Americans at this time to, to sort of protect faith and, 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 and religious speech from, from um, being kind of prohibited in, 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 in space. They think it's very appropriate that that should be taking place in that, in that domain. Huh, that, that is phenomenal. That, that, I mean, that's interesting. And O'Hara, of course, I think she's not an atheist anymore. But uh, so anyhow, so um, I, think, I think that, you know, I mean, going into space in the 1960s is super cool, but how about shaking Johnny Cash's hand? Wouldn't that be really cool, too? <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so I, I know you were a fan of, 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 of Johnny Cash. We were talking about this uh, earlier. That, that was that was a special moment that I, I do continue to talk about whenever Johnny Cash's name comes up. Um, uh, uh, yes, he, he, I think he was on one of his final tours of the UK, and I managed to be in the front row and um, shake his hand. So that was too. that's that's phenomenal. I'm just saying that as a Johnny Cash adorer that that's crazy cool so all right so anything any last thoughts in regards to we still have about two two minutes left about your book and maybe how people can find it. i know it's probably out of print right now but amazon maybe speak a little bit more about your book in particular oh well i'm sure you can yeah i think you can still buy it from from your, your favorite online retailer depending uh, whichever that is um it's and you can probably get it cheaper secondhand, and, and I really don't mind if you happen to enjoy the book. And it's enjoyed by, it seems to have been enjoyed by people of faith and people, you know, who don't espouse any faith at all. And, and um, uh, if you enjoy it, that's, that's lovely. That's good enough for me. Um, buy it secondhand. If you... if you were to do an update on the book, what would you add right now? 
So I think the, the, the interesting thing since is, is the expansion of sort of private space flight. I think over the last sort of uh, uh, 10 years, a number of, of kind of private corporations, you know, you know the people that we're thinking about, the kind of Elon Musk, the Richard Bransons, the, the Jeff Bezos, the, you know, the, 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 the role that those people are playing in, in, in space flight, I think is really interesting. Um, space tourism is really um, uh, fascinating because we're finally getting to the point which was, which was promised to some degree with before the Challenger disaster or the shuttle that you might get private individuals, not professional astronauts, actually being able to travel into space. Um, so the idea that what would happen if you had somebody who was who was actually going up into space with the specific intention of, of, of trying to sort of think about it as a spiritual experience. Maybe we're a little bit closer to that now than than, than we could have been during the. Um, uh, uh, during the Apollo program. Um, and of course, you know, there's, there's there are a number of things about kind of uh, people like Elon Musk and, and Jeff Bezos about their, their, their kind of grander ambitions uh, for space flight, about whether they're, they're searching for a kind of plan B to, to, to uh, an Earth-based civilization. So um, what that means for kind of the ideas of, sort of stewardship of the Earth, that, that's a really interesting question now. Thank you, Professor Kendrick Oliver, the author of To Touch the Face of God, the Sacred and Profane, and the American Space Program, 1957 to 1975. Sounds like a phenomenal book and a great story. Professor uh, uh, Kendrick, thank you very much. You've been a great guest. It's a fascinating topic. And thank you, have, have, a, have a good thank evening you there in the UK. All right. God bless you. Thank you very much. All right. That was a very good interview. After this break, we will be talking to our own Laurie Colgard. This is Real Presence Live, where the focus is not on the evil around us, but on conversion and mercy through the good news that is always good. We're local, engaging, and live on the Real Presence Radio Network. This is Lavinia Spirito for Catholic Way Bible Study. Some say that our age of relativism, the belief that there are no absolute truths, began when the philosophers of the Enlightenment divorced reason from reality. Indeed, David Hume wrote that reason exists only to serve our own agendas. Contrast this with great thinkers like Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine of Hippo, who each taught that reason is at the service of reality. And because of this, the human reason can reason their way to truth. In John Paul's famous encyclical Fides et Ratio, he writes, Faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. Millennia of Christians have held that faith without reason is brainwash, and reason without faith is blind. So today, when you're thinking through an issue, ask yourself, is my reason serving reality, or am I twisting reality to serve myself? Catholic Way Bible Study. Peace. Power. Purpose. Find out more at cwbs.org. Are all sins forgivable, even suicide? I'm Father Chris Alar. Jesus said that there's only one unforgivable sin, the sin against the Holy Spirit. Basically, that means dying without repenting. But how can someone who dies suddenly, such as by suicide, have a chance to repent of any sins? Jesus tells St. Faustina that he comes to the soul at death and gives them three opportunities to repent. Regarding suicide, Catechism 2283 says, By ways known to him alone, God offers them the opportunity for repentance. In essence, the only unforgivable sin is not accepting the mercy of God. So to learn how to help your loved ones do just that, please visit suicideandhope.com so I can personally pray for anyone you've lost and to get our book, After Suicide, There's Hope for Them and You, which helps with any kind of suffering or loss, not just suicide. 
I promise it will help.